We're going to be in the, the letter of 3 John, or the third epistle of John, depending on how your Bible presents that. But if you guys remember, the last time that I shared, it was out of the last chapter of 1 Corinthians. And I was touched by reading through that, Paul's dialogue with individuals. And it reminded me of some of the other letters in the Bible that are written to individual people. And so this is kind of part of a a two-part series based on a couple of personal letters that we find in the New Testament. John had written to the church as a whole, and then it seemed like he'd written to a specific church. And then in his third epistle, he writes to uh, a beloved Gaius. These letters, I, I love them because they are so personal in nature. They're directed to an individual, but yet they have so much content that we can teach from them. We can learn from this dialogue, this, this situation in which Paul was able to address with one person. I mean, Paul, sorry, John. And sorry if I already said Paul too many times, but Paul has another one, too, uh, that he writes to Philemon. But we also, we have John that's writing here. But these letters reveal God's truth to many people through these personal correspondences. And by looking at these letters, we get a glimpse of, of church life. We, in the circumstances that existed, and are able to draw instruction for ourselves today. So if you're with me in Third John, let's read together. Are you there? Amen. All right. Let's read together. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. But I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because when they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles, we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. I wrote to the church But Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren uh, and forbids those who uh, who wish to, putting them out of the church. Brethren, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God. But he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness. And you know that our testimony is true. I have many things to write to you, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. 
What a short letter. Very pointed, very uh, encouraging in many ways. I titled this message, Walking and Working in Truth. Let's begin to look at this letter and we'll draw application out as we go on. Paul opens, I'm Paul, John opens the letter. I'm going to struggle with that this morning because I've been teaching Paul for so long and now I've got to switch to John, so sorry. But John opens the letter um, and calls himself the elder. The elder. The apostle John, uh, he's the writer of uh, the gospel of John, the three letters, first, second, third John, and the book of Revelation. And by the term elder, he he potentially could be talking about his age. Uh, There's a couple of thoughts on the, um, the date of this letter. And one would put him, uh, would put it after he had already been exiled to Patmos. So he would have been, you know, up in his 90s, at least at that point. And so he could be, you know, writing from a, an older age. But it also, and I think that this is more what he's going for based off of what he says later on in the letter. He could be using and speaking of his position of authority in the church as well. His instruction and his correction are found later in this letter. But nonetheless, he probably means both because he is old and he's offering um, to instruct and correct what's going on. But he calls out Gaius and uses the term beloved. It's a term of love towards Gaius. It's related to the verb agapo which means I love. John will use it three more times in this letter. I don't know if you noticed this, but he says beloved in verse two, in verse five, in verse 11. So we have it four times. This man held a, a, a close place to John's heart, especially because of what he had heard what was happening in and through Gaius. But this is the heart of this tells us that this was John's heart of a pastor and the place where his words would proceed from. It's not just a, you know, Joe Schmo kind of relationship. This is like, hey, I'm, I'm giving you these words because I love you. Gaius himself is that the name that we find it about four times in the New Testament. It's a it was a common name at the time, but we can determine from the other Uh, mentions of of Gaius that uh, this is an individual that is separate from the other mentions in Acts and Corinthians. And from this letter, we learn a little bit about Gaius. He is the the dependable layman in the church. He wasn't listed or referred to as a church leader per se, but he was somebody that ministered in and through the church. And then there's a few others that are mentioned. Well, two others mentioned by name. You have Diotrephes, who appears to be a dominating official, and Demetrius, the kindly messenger uh, from Ephesus with the letter. And there's some conjecture there, but we think that maybe he's the one bringing the letter to Gaius. And, and John writes within the letter like, hey, Demetrius, is, he's, a, he's a like-minded brother. We want you to, I want you to spend some time with him and be encouraged by him. But this is a vivid picture of early church life and missionary work. 
John goes on to say in verse 1, whom I love in the truth. The apostles' love for Gaius was in the truth. That is, that it was genuine and in accordance with God's truth. These two words, love and truth, are very much the theme of this small little letter. The thought of this letter is dominated by a concern for truth and love in the Christian experience. You'll see it used in uh, verse 1, 1, verses, or verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, verse 12. And then you have, uh, that's truth, sorry. And then love is mentioned in verses 1 and 6. Just permeated. All these, these, these 14 little verses just packed full. So he opens his letter in, in, in a prayer for Gaius. He says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. So John begins with this prayer. And how even his example of praying for one another and seeing one another grow in our faith and continue to walk in the truth, he does it, he starts this off. And he says, for prosperity and health. Now, this wasn't some, you know, health and wealth thing that John was doing, but it, it was, they're good things to pray for and that we should be praying for. But the reason he could pray for it is because. Gaius' soul was already prospering. He wants his health and his prosperity to get to that point. So that would enable him to continue to minister. It's the right priority. You know, we could be seeking health above the soul and in the end die without our souls being right with God. Or we could seek prosperity above our soul being right with God and become rich and successful and still only find emptiness. This was a common way to open a letter and if you, uh, they would even sometimes abbreviate it with certain Roman um, characters to just send out a little blessing. But we know that John spells it out because it is an expression of his genuine love for Gaius and that he meant it. He goes, he continues on, he says, For I was very glad when the brethren came and testified to your truth. So John heard about how Gaius was doing because of the experiences of those that had traveled through um, and, and had encountered Gaius. And they came back and they told John and they said, He's walk, he, this is a man that walks in the truth. He, he, they reported to uh, John that Gaius, how he treated them and how he conducted his life. Not just on that one instance, but they were able to stand off and see how he had, was working with the other believers and what he was doing and how he was receiving people. His walk was consistent with God's truth. His style of life. He had soundness of faith and a depth of religion. Walking in truth doesn't mean that you have all the answers to theological questions or understanding of all the doctrines of the Bible. 
But rather, knowing these things plays out in how you live your life. And if what we know has no impact on how we conduct ourselves, we've missed the point of our studying and our gathering and hearing of the teaching and all these other things. Spurgeon would write, what is it to walk in truth? Is it not walking? It it is not walking in the the truth or someone would suppose it meant that John was overjoyed because they were sound in doctrine and cared little for anything else. His joyous survey did include their orthodoxy and creed, but it reached far beyond that. It played out in how he lived his life. To walk in truth means to walk consistent with what you believe. To walk in truth means to walk in a way that is real and genuine without any phoniness or concealment. These are ways that we can, we can check ourselves against God's word and how we are behaving and what we are doing. Are we being genuine? Are we trying to walk out what God's word says? John commended Gaius for his genuine way of life, marked by his behavior towards the visiting brethren. John writes in verse 4, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. John's use of the word children indicates that Gaius may have received the Lord uh, through John's ministry. It's possible that by referring to Gaius as one of his children, John meant that Gaius was a convert. Paul uses this term affectionately for those that have received the Lord through his ministry as well. On the other hand, as we talked about earlier, it could be just a sign that he's uh, older and simply thought of those whom he ministered to from a paternal perspective and with a fatherly concern. I have a, a memory of, that I carry with me, and it must have impacted me from like a pretty young age, but uh, when I was young and I was involved in church and um, at, at the church that I grew up in, I remember being on stage and I went behind my pastor's pulpit one time and there was this little inscription of this verse. It, it revealed to me as a young man that he, my pastor's care for the church that God had called him to lead. It, it's God's heart that I believe that is placed in, in the heart of a pastor. It all, and even a father, I'd say, as well. But it's a, it's a, it expresses in it a sentiment that informs the way that he teaches. It, it informs the way that he leads, and it also informs the way that he ministers. To see and hear that those in his care are walking in the truth brings such joy and gladness to a leader, a pastor of a church. And I could I could see that in in my pastor at that time. And I know it's the it's the heart of Pastor Greg as he stands out here. And it's something that I'm I love, too, and that's growing within me. But as we look at this in, in such 
high esteem that John is holding Gaius, I wonder to what degree Gaius walked that would compel the brethren to bring back this word to John. Like, what were the behaviors that they were doing, that he was doing? Well, John goes to spell out some of the report that he received from the brethren. He says, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren. So faithfulness. Especially when they are strangers. And when they have testified to your love before the church. And they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well in sending them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Well, first we see that he was acting faithfully. His actions were faithful to what God's word taught. To the truth of God. Therefore, it was praiseworthy. And the same is true with us. If we, can see, if we see somebody acting in accordance with God's word, that's worthy of praise. But what we're seeing at the root of it all was his love shown through his actions. The love of John and others for this community of believers was founded and predicated on God's truth. It arose because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Christian love is by no means more mere sentimentalism or humanistic compassion, but is motivated by a knowledge of the truth which has been revealed in Christ. Truth is the basis of love. It is precisely this truth on the account of which the church is loved that the church must be careful to guard. It's from a... um, the Bible knowledge commentary. I love what it says right there, that Christian love is by no means a mere sentimentalism or humanistic compassion. It's based in the knowledge of what Christ has done for us, that we can are compelled to love others, are compelled to give sacrificially of our time, our resources, our capacities, our strength to another person. See, Gaius' actions flowed from the truth of the Lord working in him and his understanding of what Jesus had done for him. John, in his own gospels, would in his own gospel would proclaim Christ's love for his church. We can read his prayer in John 17. We could read his teaching in, the, in his gospel. We can read of how he laid down his life in order to save us from our sin. It was with this heart and with this message that Gaius acted generously towards the brethren. That was his motivation. And John said, you'll do well. Now, something gets lost a little bit in translation here because really this, when you see that word and do well, it means please, like he's exhorting Gaius to please keep on doing what you're doing. Don't let anyone stop you. Your actions are true and loving. Keep on doing what you're doing. And that that matters because we see that there was somebody present in Gaius's life that was doing the opposite. Somebody that would potentially seek to uh, influence or put uh, pressure upon Gaius to stop. This man... Diotrephes. 
Don't let anyone stop you, guys. Your actions are true and loving. Keep pressing in. Now, the, the, what's being expressed here, too, in sending them on their way, in no doubt carried a general usage. The condemnation, con, condemnation of making adequate provisions for one's guests, both while they stayed and at the time of their departure. So this was descriptive of how, how Gaius was bringing them in, uh, these traveling missionaries, these traveling ministers. He, he'd bring them in and he would provide for their needs. But not only that, he would, he would take care of them up until they would left and even would send them on with something until they got to their next location. The force of the apostles' words was to enjoin on Gaius an open-handed generosity towards the traveling brethren. Nothing less than such generosity would be worthy of God, who expressed his supreme generosity in the giving of his son. And so John pulls out this word, or this, this phrase, worthy of God. And Paul actually goes to expound on it in, in some of his other letters of what worthy conduct looks like. And I thought it'd be good for us to kind of dive into that. It might give us a fuller picture of what Gaius, how Gaius was behaving when these, these traveling brethren would come through. And not only providing for their needs, but what his actions looked like. What maybe motivated him. In 1 Thessalonians 2.12, it says, So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So here, to walk worthy means to walk according to a new allegiance. God's kingdom. According to new motives for God's glory. Romans 16.2 That you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. And that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. To walk worthy is to receive and help those doing the work of the Lord. Which Gaius was already illustrated as doing. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. It reads, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain Absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So we see here to walk worthy means standing firm, immovable, working together with other brothers and sisters for the faith of the gospel. And maybe that's why John had sent uh, Demetrius to Guys, maybe he needed that encouragement. Maybe he needed a companion to help him press on into uh, the way he was walking already, worthy of the gospel, worthy of God. In Colossians 1.10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. To walk worthy here is to be pleasing to God in what we do, growing in our knowledge of him and what pleases him. And one more. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul writes, Therefore, 
I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So to walk worthy is to conduct ourselves in what God has called us to do, in love, in unity, and in peace. Worthy of God. That's what John is exhorting Gaius to do and recognizing what he had already been doing. Walking worthy of God is doing things in such a way as God can approve them. And this is how Gaius treated the traveling ministers. And we learn more about these traveling ministers and what their uh, role was and what they were doing. It says in verse 7, For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore we ought to support such men, so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. For the sake of preaching the gospel of grace of God, they went out. And they were making known Jesus to the Gentiles or to the heathens, those that weren't Jews, those that were serving false idols, worshiping other gods. They went out to preach the gospel. That was their motive. Gaius was to help those who went out for the sake of the name. Paul also expounds more on the name. In Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, it says, For this reason also God highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Go out for the sake of the name. It was a great honor. And these ministers of the gospel went out. As they went out, they didn't accept anything from those they ministered to. Chiefly the the Gentiles. One commentator writes, he goes, Naturally, it was inappropriate for those who did so to seek support from those who did not believe believe in or honor that name. Thus the Lord's servants went out receiving no help from the pagans. Even in the present day, there is something unseemingly in a preacher of the gospel soliciting funds from the people to whom he offers God's free salvation. But the fact that faithful Christian preachers sought no help from the unsaved meant that Christians were under a special obligation to assist them. By extending the needed help, showing hospitality to such men, Christians such as Gaius would work together for the truth. That this last phrase might be better rendered, be fellow workers with the truth. The thought is of a partnership with what the truth accomplishes in people's hearts and lives. It was a noble objective for Gaius to follow. You see, John was, he, he didn't want to hear that any of these these men that were going out were receiving anything from those they were trying to minister to. Now, this is different from 
you know, what God has called us to do when it is in support of church leadership and different things. We want to kind of draw that. But what we want to have in our mind is more the image of sending out our missionaries. Um, and being the ones that are providing for them as they go and take out the word of God. Or it could be uh, somebody that we're sending out into another mission area or a place of preaching the gospel. We are, as the church, are the ones to get behind them and to support them financially, through prayer, through maybe the provision of uh, um, practical items, different things. That's, that's the heart behind this. So that they aren't going out poor and, and, and needing to even beg for, for help. That's actually a sign of not, not a good leader uh, that is or missionary in a sense. They're asking for the people to provide for them uh, that they're ministering to. And this was a specific situation where they were traveling around. You know, oftentimes, even here at the church, we'll get little emails from people we don't know who they are. Like, hey, can I come speak at your church? You know, I only cost this much. You know, and it's, well, okay. You know, that's a little bit weird. But, you know, there's just these things that, that it's important for us to get behind what God is doing and in, in whom we are sending out. In the name of Jesus. I know that as um, when Pastor Greg was out in in Wales and I went along to join him after Heather and I had been married, we were sent out from our church and they had provided and it was what we received. I was able to work there for a little bit. I was able to provide for my family, but we didn't ask the church who we were ministering to for anything. If the Lord stirred their heart to give, that's a whole different story, too. But we didn't ask for that. But we, we went out supported by those who sent us. And so that's the idea here. John is anxious that Christian missionaries receive nothing from the heathen as our missionaries have to watch against the charge of being after money. And money is always a difficult thing to talk about in the church. And there are traveling lecturers that were out for money at the time. So it was upon the church to support such. And not only those that are going out, these were people that were facing persecution. These were people that were suffering for righteousness sake. And they had professed the truth at the hazard of their own lives. The loss of their own worldly substance, leaving behind maybe a job or a business in order to pursue preaching the gospel to those that need to hear it. The idea is to undertake or to kindly receive them and provide for them. Fellow workers, as the word is, um, says here, involves support, care, and provision. And thus encouraged the persecuted and contributed to the spread and maintenance of the gospel. That's how we are fellow workers. It's not just, um, it's in the providing, it's in the support that we are fellow workers. There are some people that are called to go and there are some people that are called to send. And that's how it works in the church. And, but all of them are working together for the same purpose. Uh, David Gutzik points out in, in 1 Samuel 30 that there was a reward for these supported people as the same as those who went out to the front lines. It, it's a... Uh, 
It describes a battle where some people stayed behind to watch the camp and take care of everything while the others went out to fight the battle. But, and it shows this principle that where the spoils were distributed equally among, the, the spoils of that war were distributed equally among those who fought and those who supported. King David understood that the supply lines were just as vital as the soldiers, and God would reward, reward both soldiers and supporters properly and generously. So there is reward in those that send and support as well as those who go and do. It's the same for us, as I've already shown out, where we support our missionaries. It's for the sake of the name of Jesus we follow. And when we pray, when we financially support, we go as support and our fellow workers. Every believer has a role in the support of those who go out for the sake of name of the name. Jesus even mentions in Matthew 10, 42, that Jesus promised that even the help offered in a cup of cold water to one of his children would not be forgotten when God brings his reward. He knows all of these things. He sees them all. He knows when we're quietly walking our dog around the neighborhood, just lifting up the missionaries, the people that are out doing the work. He sees that. And that honors him. And he's hearing them being brought before him. But it also explains why John would pray for the prosperity of Gaius, right? So John is encouraging one who is encouraging others that he used his resources in a godly way, being a blessing to others. If God blessed him with more, others would be blessed more also. The exhortation here to draw away, the exhortation is to keep on being fellow workers. Don't hold back. I wrote something to the church, picking up in verse 9. But Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. You got to contrast Diotrephes here, his concern for himself and those missionaries that traveled, gave up things for the name of Jesus. You see, John wrote something to the church, but he says that Diotrephes he, he hindered that message. It didn't get out. We don't have this letter. We don't know what it said. Diotrephes probably received it and said, I'm going to throw that in the circle or filing cabinet, you know, some of our terms that we have. But we see opposition was present in the church through an individual. Opposition to what God wanted to do, it came down to a person who was trying to use his role as an officer in the church to further his own agenda. He loved to be first. So he's looking for every opportunity to step into that place. One commentator writes, uh, based on Diotrephes, Loving the preeminence among them. This is the original and greatest of all sins. It's the sin of Satan, 
who was unwilling to be what God had created him to be, and who desired rather to be like the Most High. Isaiah 14, 14. It is the opposite of the nature of Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself of nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. So we don't see Diotrephes' life bearing the fruit of a follower of Christ at this moment. Hence, he kept this, he didn't accept what they said, is what John says. He doesn't accept what we say. Hence, he kept the message of the letter back from the church. He also went to the extent of accusing them with wicked words. He was making false and defamatory statements about the apostles. Wicked words. I I looked that up. It was malicious, spiteful, hostile, evil-minded, baleful, bitter, and evil-intentioned, poisonous, venomous, evil, malign, malignant, rancorous, vicious, vindictive, vengeful, revengeful, pernicious, cruel, fierce, nasty, unfriendly, unkind, and ill-natured. That's a list. But it caused me to to check my own heart, right? Because some of these words sound way more harsh than other ones. Unfriendly, unkind. That's something that easily slips in. But this was Diotrephes' disposition. He was against them. And went to the point of defaming them so no one would listen to, to the brethren that were coming and whom John had sent. He doesn't receive the brethren. He didn't receive their apostolic authority of those who sent them and therefore didn't receive them. And then he goes on to control those in the church. He forbids those who desire to receive them, that have the desire to show good works. He forbids them to receive the brethren and then kicks them from the church if they choose to do so. So this man was not engaged in unity, right? He was was very focused on what he wanted to do, what, what his agenda was. We have a guy that is working against the truth. No unity, but rather disunity. No encouragement, but rather defamation. No service, but rather self-seeking. Quite the opposite of Gaius' example. And John, after talking about what was happening with uh, um, Diotrephes, he opens verse 11 up with the word beloved again. Do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God, and the one who does evil has not seen God. Do not imitate evil. He goes, this is a bad example. I don't want you to even follow his example. Seemed pretty obvious in the letter, right? I'm like reading, I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't want to follow his example. But think about the pressures that could be upon him from inside and out. The, The cutting off of fellowship among certain people. There could be... Uh, a, a temptation in that way. 
And Paul would even stand against Peter in, in Galatians. He writes, when Peter began to separate himself from the Gentile believers, we need to keep to the gospel. We need to keep to what the message of the gospel says. And the gospel says to support those that are going out in the name, and for the sake of the name. One's conduct will clearly reflect one's relationship with God. Diotrephes was not to be imitated, but an example of what not to do. What not to do. So, who is it that we should be imitating? I think John actually spells this out in his first letter, or his letter of First John. It says in 1 John 3.10, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So who is somebody to imitate in, in our midst? One who is loving and practices righteousness. 1 John 4, 1-4 Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children. You have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Who is it that confesses Jesus' name? Who is it that ministers in his name? Those are the ones that we want to, to align ourselves with and, and imitate and support. 1 John 4, 6 and 7. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Who is it among us that listens to God's word and loves the church, the people of God? It's these people that we mark out and follow their example, because they thus becoming examples also to others. The one who does good is of God. And the one who does evil. It suggests that the source of one's actions or attitude is in God. Conversely, anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. That's what John says. In John, 1 John 3, 6, he says, No one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has seen him nor knows him. The assertion should, be, should not be watered down. Evil never arises from a real spiritual perception of God but is always a product of darkness of heart and blindness towards God. You notice the correlation? Has not seen God? John was not questioning Diotrephes' salvation, but he was affirming that Diotrephes' conduct manifested real blindness toward God. Gaius was to be careful to sun shut such an experience as this. He who is unfeeling, unmerciful, unkind, hath not seen God, has no proper knowledge of that God whose name is mercy, whose name, whose nature is love, was by Adam Clark. Those that have seen God will show it through their actions. You can't hide it. It's like a lamp set, what's Jesus say? A lamp set on a stand. It's 
for everyone to see. Demetrius, verse 12, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. This is perhaps, you know, um, like I mentioned earlier, the one that was potentially the one that carried the letter to Gaius. Uh, It could have also been another member of the church that was uh, known to John and encouraged them to uh, hold fast to one another as they um, pursued the work of the Lord. But Demetrius is given a proper threefold witness. One, the people who received of his hospitality saw his pattern of life. His actions were in line with the truth of Jesus. And John says those traveling evangelists would affirm it. So Gaius was encouraged to embrace this brother and find encouragement from him. The need for fellowship, the need for support to keep going on in what God has called us to do. In verse 13, as we wrap up, it says, And I had many things to write to you, but I'm not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. So we see that there was more that John wanted to write, but he was going to save it till he saw him face to face. And he bids him in a situation that is difficult. He bids him with peace. Peace to you. That Gaius can trust that God could provide peace in the the hostility that was around him and in this situation until John could make it and he could confront Diotrephes all these things keep seeking Jesus so a few notes as we wrap up this the Christian life is one that is consistent with God's truth worthy conduct in the church living out the truth of God's word that instructs our behaviors towards one another Unity, helping one another, pressing on together in the faith, looking to please the Lord, bearing fruit and good works towards one another and strangers and growing in the knowledge of God. They're all worthy conducts. Humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, diligence in preserving the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Worthy conduct in the church. Today we had two examples, one good example of walking in the truth and of being a fellow worker in it, and one bad example of control and self-centeredness hindering the work of truth. Our exhortation was not to imitate what was evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God and comes from God, and the one who does evil has not seen God or has been with him. So we understand something about ourselves today. What we do reveals who we've been with. Doing good can only come from time spent with God. It's the example of men who have been with God we can look to as a pattern of living. The two overarching themes, walking in truth and being a fellow worker in the truth. Truth we looked at means soundness of faith and depth of religion. It covered very, every sphere of life, moral, intellectual, spiritual. It means to walk in a way that is real and genuine without any phoniness or concealment. Truth is the basis of Christian love.
So walking in truth means that love is displayed in our actions. Gaius was praised because of the way he walked out his faith and was encouraged to connect with another brother who shared the same testimony of faithful living. My heart as a leader is like that of John to hear that this body of believers is walking in the truth and that it is evident in what is happening among us. This does not mean perfection, but a visual display that we are walking in the truth. Jesus has the words of truth. He is the truth. There is freedom, there is renewal, there is direction, there is new life and and identity to be found in relationship with him and following his word. There is joy in gathering together with those who follow his word and are engaged in the work of supporting those that minister the gospel. There is also joy to be had from engaging in the work ourselves, becoming missionaries at home and abroad, evangelizing, discipling, and being discipled. John says, keep going on. Keep doing the work. Walking in truth. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your exhortation this morning, Lord. To keep going, Lord. To keep doing Lord, what we have found to be true in you. Lord, we praise you for all the rich blessings that we have in you. Lord, and we look for your glory and your honor in our lives. Lord, that whatever we're engaged in, Lord, in work and life and family, Lord, in ministry, Lord, that you are the one that receives the glory. Lord, that we bear your name in a, in a way that glorifies you. And we thank you for your word, Lord. Give us vision for what you would have us to do. Give us vision for the ministries to be a part of, Lord. Lord, open up our hearts, Lord, uh, with generosity. Because you are first generous, Lord, and have given all for us. Lord, we praise you and thank you for your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.